Welcome to the 11th episode of the AMM Dividend Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Bush, and I'm the Lead Portfolio Manager for the AMM Dividend Growth Strategy at American Money Management. Uh, before we start this episode, I want to say thank you to the Frugal Billionaire for leaving the rating and the review. I greatly appreciate it, and I do hear you about uploading more episodes. You know, I'm always looking for ways to add more content and to produce a more consistent podcast for you guys. Uh, but my goal with this podcast is to really dive into our portfolio, uh, what we're investing in and why, and just how we're managing a concentrated portfolio. You know, I don't want this podcast to be just a stock idea podcast. So this kind of narrows down my content options. But just so you know, we do have some shows coming down the pipeline. Uh, we just sent out the next dividend letter, and I'll convert that to a podcast episode shortly. I'm working on another dividend stock to avoid episode, and I'm doing this episode, which is based on our quarterly letter that we sent out to all clients of AMM. While it's not specifically about our AMM dividend growth strategy, it does get into our five core principles, our investment philosophy, and how we manage portfolios in an uncertain future. And all this applies directly to how we manage the dividend growth strategy. So let's do a disclaimer and get into the episode. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Glenn Bush and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of American Money Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor who serves as a portfolio manager to private accounts, as well as to a mutual fund. Clients of AMM, Mr. Bush, and employees of AMM, and the mutual fund AMM manages may buy or sell investments mentioned without prior notice. This podcast should not be considered investment advice and is for educational purposes only. So a few years ago, myself and Michael Moore, our chief investment officer, not the filmmaker, uh, we attended the annual forecast dinner for the San Diego chapter of the CFA Society. I think it's in late December. It might be early January. Uh, but anyways, at this dinner, all of us professional money men and women submit their stock market return predictions for the coming year. Now, it's been a few years since I went to one of these dinners, and I think the person who gets it right wins something. But anyways, I, you know, I went for something really bold because if I won, then people might remember me. You know, no one's going to remember the person who guessed 7% and got it right. And the main attraction of the night was the keynote speaker. That was Howard Marks. Um, you know, he's looking over the car with the average predicted returns versus the actual returns. And as you look at it, obviously there's no correlation between those predictions and what the returns actually were. But Howard notices something else. You know, the predictions did fit very closely with the prior year's returns. All of us professionals were really good at predicting the past. What Howard pointed out was a recency bias, which is how it's really easy for us to remember something that just happened than something much further in the past. The recency bias pops up a lot when we're faced with an uncertain future and we have to act like we do with investing. But investing into that uncertainty is really uncomfortable. So we make predictions to help ourselves out. You know, these predictions are heavily influenced by recent events. Now, I don't know if this table originated with Whitney Tilson in his Empire Financial Research, but we got it off his daily email. And the table is the top 10 companies by market cap value at the end of the last five decades, plus the top investment theme of that decade. Now, I'll put a link in the description for the full letter so you can see the table. And in 1979, the companies were IBM, AT&T, Exxon, Standard Oil, Schlumberger, Shell Oil, uh, Mobile, Eastman Kodak, Atlantic Richfield, and GE. Uh, the main theme, obviously, is energy. Uh, then in 1989, it was NTT. Uh, Bank of Tokyo, Industrial Bank of Japan, Sumitomi Mitsui, uh, I'm going to screw up a lot of these names, Toyota, Fuji Bank, Daiichi Kanjio Bank, 
IBM, UFJ Bank, and Exxon again. Obviously, this theme is Japan. Uh, then at the end of 1999, it was Microsoft, GE, NTT, Docomo, Cisco, Walmart, Intel, uh, Exxon, Lucent, Deutsche Telekom, and obviously this is the tech and telecom bubble era. Then in 2009, it was ExxonMobil, PetroChina, Apple, BHP Billiton, Microsoft, ICBC, Petrobras, China Construction Bank, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, Nestle. And this was a decade of uh, Chinese growth and the commodity boom associated with it. And now today at the end of the 2010s, we have Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent, JP Morgan, Johnson & Johnson, and Visa. And the theme is tech again, but more specifically, it's the internet and kind of the rise of the mobile platform. And except for ExxonMobil and Microsoft, most of these companies on this list don't repeat as a top 10 company in the future decades. So what are the odds that the most valuable companies listed today will be the same 10 years from now? Or that the major investment theme of the 2010s will still be the same in the 2020s? Because the 2010s just ended and the top 10 companies feel just unstoppable, especially all these tech companies, will most likely overweight their odds of repeating. Now, including kind of the tech and mobile investment theme, the other major investment theme of the 2010s is what we call the state of perpetual panic. With the market at new all-time highs, viral TikTok videos of kids making money day trading, uh, people hacking the Robinhood app for infinite leverage, uh, the Reddit forum Wall Street Bets, you know, it might be hard to remember all the panic-inducing headlines of the past 10 years. Now, lucky for us, Ed Yardini counted them all up, and they got about 65 market panics over the last 10 years. Uh, again, there'll be a link in the description for their full list. And Yardini defines a panic as a relatively short-lived market sell-off in the S&P 500 of about 5 to 20%. Uh, some of my favorites from the list are the Greek debt crisis, uh, Brexit, fears of the Fed tapering, uh, and then you have the flash crash. Now, the state of perpetual panic is another effect of the recency bias. Everyone can immediately remember the great financial crisis of 2008, and with every fear-inducing headline, the feeling was, this is it. This is the start of the next big bear market. But amidst all this panic, the S&P 500 had one of its best decades in history. Now, throughout the 2010s, it annualized 13% per year. Now, the consistent fear and panic meant investors were not complacent and that the market was pricing in the known risks. You know, we think this is a good thing. You know, it's only bad if it drives investors out of the market completely, or worse, it has them getting out of the market on bad news, and then back in when everything has calmed down and prices are much higher. Yes, at some point, a panic will lead to a bear market, but trying to predict when or how this will happen is a fool's errand. You know, maybe the coronavirus finally causes it, but we don't know. We do know that trying to predict when this will happen and investing based on this prediction has been ha hazardous to long-term returns. And this is not just for the 2010s. So instead of trying to outsmart the market or make uncertain predictions about the next five to 10 years, we focus on understanding today and invest according to our five core principles. And those principles are, are number one, asset allocation is the most important decision. Now, this is less applicable to our dividend growth strategy since it's 100% stocks, but in general, determining how much to invest in stocks, bonds, real estate, and other assets is a primary factor in your long-term returns and the amount of fluctuation in your portfolio. Uh, the second principle, volatility is not risk. The real risk is the permanent impairment of your capital. Volatility to us is only risky if it spook, uh, spooks investors and causes them to abandon a well-thought-out investment policy and sell a fundamentally sound position at a loss. Our third principle, the price you pay determines your return. Pay too high a price for any asset, 
and you will earn subpar returns. Paying a low price